reached the point of the summer when the Halloween decorations start to emerge at local retailers. I don't know about you, but I am not ready for that yet. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. Why was the Times Union the first news organization to to file this request? We'll talk to United Way Philanthropist of the Year, Ben Williams, from the Connect Center for Youth in Cohoes. It's a really big challenge when you're going through some of the dark parts in your life and you don't know what this experience means. You know, I'm just really grateful that a lot of these things are, you know, coming full circle back into my work here at the Connect Center. And we'll hear about the latest developments in a 62-year-old cold case from Colony. But obviously, they didn't have the DNA um, technology that now exists today. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Right now, let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we are here once again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler to go over the top headlines. Let's start this week with something really big. Uh, On Monday, the FBI raided former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. Uh, And something that we here at the TU did in response to that situation has become a bit notable. So tell us more. Yeah, Brendan Lyons, who is our managing editor for investigations, as well as our Capitol Bureau chief, you know, woke up Tuesday morning and thought, why not uh, file a motion with the court? And this is a magistrate judge down in the Palm Beach uh, area asking for the unsealing of the search warrant that was used by the Department of Justice to empower FBI agents to show up at Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's resort and residence on Monday and conduct an hours long search. That was, as it turns out, the first news organization to file such a request, along with um, Judicial Watch, which is a conservative advocacy organization in the hours after uh, our request was filed with the court, a number of other uh, news organizations um, uh, filed their own motions, basically uh, asking for the same things. And the documents we're talking about here are the search warrant and um, what's known as, you know, the receipt, essentially, which is what the agents took away with them at the end of the search, both the search warrant and that receipt of the, the goods, as it were, uh, are presented to the person or their representative who is the, you know, the subject of the search warrant. In other words, the person whose residence is being, residence or office is being searched. And we were not looking for, um, or did not expect to get, I should say, the really juicy documents, um, which are the affidavits that were submitted to the judge 
for him to weigh in considering whether or not a search warrant was indeed appropriate, even in an unprecedented case like a search of a former um, president's house. Those uh, affidavits, which include witness testimony, uh, investigative um, statements from agents, as it were, are usually not unsealed and revealed to the public until an arrest is made or an indictment is unsealed. So we made our request on Tuesday. Wednesday, Brendan wrote a story about it. And then on Thursday afternoon, uh, we were surprised at our 1.30 meeting when uh, it became public that Merrick Garland, the attorney general, was going to uh, make a statement on this matter. The Justice Department has filed a motion in the Southern District of Florida to unseal a search warrant and property receipt relating to a court-approved search that the FBI conducted earlier this week. Now, we're talking Thursday afternoon. Donald Trump's attorneys have until 3 p.m. on Friday to respond as to whether or not they're going to ask the court to go ahead and uh, release uh, that material uh, or keep it under seal or not, which would be pretty um, remarkable considering that Trump, uh, you know, is, of course, accusing the FBI of being secretive and all sorts of perfidy. But we'll have to wait and see what his response is. Absent something like that or further weirdness, we expect that we should be able to see the search warrant documents perhaps as soon as Friday evening or over the weekend. I want to ask why we did this. Do we typically do something like this in a situation, although there hasn't really been a situation similar to this since maybe Watergate, but I mean, what what led to the decision on your part, on Brendan's part to, to do this? Well, Brendan's thinking, and of course, we spoke about this before he sent it in, you know, and he, he's, it's essentially a page and a half letter. And Brendan knows his stuff and he knows criminal procedure and he knows the precedent that can be cited in requests to unseal materials like this. There's ample precedent. The default is transparency that is unsealing. We have made requests like this in local matters, regional matters, statewide matters before. So it's essentially just a matter of framing out a request to a federal magistrate judge who in terms of protocol is following the same precedent and the same federal law and the same ways to respond to a journalist that any other federal judge should. In other words, it's not like Brendan asked me, hey, I want to get on a plane and I want to go down to to Palm Beach as much as Brendan likes Florida. Um, (laughs) But it was essentially just a, a couple of hours of work at his desk and the cost of sending a hard copy of the request via overnight, you know, mail. What I'm surprised by, Jess, I guess I would kind of turn your question around and not direct it at you, but say, why was the Times Union the first news organization to to file this request? And why isn't every news organization from Albany to Rancho Cucamonga making the same kind of request? This is obviously a matter of significant uh, national interest. So it looks like everybody is going to get it. I'm very pleased that the Times Union appears to be the first or- news organization that um, that formally requested it. Well, we set a pretty good example and led the way in this case, so we'll see what happens. All right, one more story. This one goes back to Hollywood. The Gilded Age is back in town 
filming. What's the latest there? Yeah, back in town and sort of uh, expanding their footprint. You know, they did a lot of filming around Troy last year for the first season. This year, they are doing a lot more in Albany, specifically around um, Washington Park, especially on sort of the eastern edge of Washington Park. They're also going to be doing filming in um, Cohoes as well. And of course, they'll, they'll be back in Troy. My wife and I went down on uh, Wednesday night to check out the filming in Albany. It was really pretty amazing and uh, just kind of out of nowhere, uh, there's almost this, this small village that's everything from horse trailers to, you know, costumers and makeup people and the mix of the incredible technology that's used to make a, a piece of entertainment these days contrasting with these, you know, 19th century wardrobes. And they are really making use of, of Albany's incredibly beautiful historic architecture, especially in, in that neighborhood and, and all around Center Square. Now, I, I speak as somebody who lives um, about a mile uh, west of where they're filming. So I'm sure for folks who live in the neighborhood, it is alternately uh, magical and kind of annoying, especially when you're trying to find a parking space when your your street is shut down. But I encourage everyone who lives around where they're filming to pay attention to, you know, the Times Union. We're, we'll be alerting people to where they're filming is when as much as we know about it and uh, go down and, and check it out. It's a it's a singular experience. Well, I can't wait till the second season comes out. I, I can't wait to see the see Albany be featured in the background. All right, Casey, thank you so much for joining us. We will check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Way of the Greater Capital Region gave its top 2022 honor to Ben Williams. The executive director of the Connect Center for Youth in Cohoes was named Philanthropist of the Year last spring. He was recognized for his work building a community resource that aims to provide a safe and educational space for kids in 6th through 12th grades. These kids can attend an after-school program during the year and a series of summer camps, all for free that center on building STEM and STEAM skills like sound production, web development, and video game programming. The center opened its doors on the ground floor of the Good Ground Family Church on High Street in Cohoes in 2021, smack in the middle of the pandemic. I had a chance recently to sit down with Williams to learn more about his origin story. What led him to this work? The first thing I asked him, with everything he has going on right now, does he ever have time to sleep? I'm a bulldog. Once I, you know, have something that I need to do, like I just, I don't stop until I'm done, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's really important. The work is important. Williams grew up in the Capital Region. He graduated from the Albany Academies. He was recruited to play football at Cornell. But then came a devastating injury during a scrimmage against Yale his freshman fall. That changed his trajectory. 
broke my leg really bad you know kind of spiraled that was one of the you know biggest and hardest adversities of my life to that point and you know just kind of being young and um uh you know lots of pain pills and uh didn't really um recognize the effect that they were having and didn't realize that I was becoming dependent on them and then you know I had to kick them and um you know, it was uh, really before the mental health conversation was being had, uh, you know, kind of regularly, you know, especially being raised in hyper-masculine environments like football. And I ended up coming home. A few years later, his younger brother was recruited to play football at RPI. On a lark, he joined his brother on the team and went back to school. And then, um, you know, I ran into the same kind of uh, mental health challenges there. Uh, didn't end up finishing and um, went into the world. He got a gig at the Cheesecake Factory. It, it was really challenging and I loved it. Um, so I started on the saute station, uh, had never cooked before. I'm surprised I didn't start in the dish room, uh, but my boss saw something in me in six months, I was promoted from saute cook to saucier. So I was cranking out lots of food. And then uh, in another six months, I got promoted to management. Then came another setback. His father, with whom he had a very close relationship, was diagnosed with cancer in 2015. His father died the following year. I just kind of became lost again. Uh, I kind of lost my passion for cooking and uh you know, a lot of that and needed a switch. And, um, you know, I I was talking to my mom a lot, obviously. And then, uh, you know, she just came to me and told me that she needed help one day. William's mother, Donna, is the senior pastor at the Good Ground Family Church. His parents founded the church when he was in high school. It's situated in the 100,000-square-foot former St. Agnes Cathedral on High Street in Cohoes. You can see its spire from literally anywhere you are in the Spindle City. A few years before he died, William's dad, the Reverend Wendell Williams, conceived the idea of a youth program at the church. You know, once again, there's no bus system in Cohoes, so my dad would see the kids walking by the church all the time. And he used to drag the grill out and cook them hamburgers and hot dogs and just, like, say hi to them. And, and then figured out that nobody was going to give money for his work to a church. So I had to start a whole 501c3, uh, the Connect Center in 2012. The project languished. It was hard to find the funding and time needed to make it happen. After he passed, um, you know, shortly after I came over to uh, work here, uh, mainly to help my mom out. I didn't know what any of it meant. I just knew she needed help and I could help her. So I started off on, you know, the church side of things, uh, helping administrate uh, and stuff like that. But uh, I just felt called back to the Connect Center uh, project. And um, we revisited the original build-out space with the city, and uh, they wanted me to satisfy fire code. Uh, and I was like, cool. And then I priced it out, and, um, you know, it was going to be in the six figures, and I had $6,000 in the bank account. Um, <laughs> Not quite going to cover it. <laughs> yeah. I knew uh, since the project had been stalled, 
uh, for so long, I knew it needed some movement. I just, you know, I just knew it needed some space and some programming uh, so I could start to get eyes on it again and restart the ball rolling. So I took the six grand, told my mom I was going to build a music studio. She called me insane and a whole bunch of other words. And um, here we are sitting in the music studio now, (laughs) like two years later. Yep. And um, it has marvelous acoustics. Let me just tell you. Yeah, I love it. This is just the space that I wanted when I was growing up exploring music. I just wanted, uh, you know, a great space to come in, yank stuff off the wall, press buttons, make noise and explore music. You know, this ground level is kind of my addition to the Connect Center vision. Um, so upstairs originally uh, there had been plans for a computer lab. And, um, you know, I was in there like crying one day and I was just like, what if I kind of just blow this out downstairs? Um, So we really explored STEAM and STEM programming and then figured out that a lot of my past experiences and passions kind of wrapped into it from the music arts to the culinary arts um, to video games, um, you know, even some of my experience tutoring and mentoring. It all is just kind of wrapped up in this uh, kind of new Connect Center model. And, um, you know, I'm really thankful for it and I'm really excited by it. And um, it's a really big challenge when you're going through some of the dark parts in your life and you don't know what this experience means or, um, you know, why it's happening. And, um, you know, I'm just really grateful that a lot of these things are, you know, coming full circle back into my work here at the Connect Center. Of course, you've been recognized with a pretty prestigious award. Yeah. You're the United Way of the Greater Capital Region's Philanthropist of the Year in 2022. Yeah. I mean, what did that mean to you? Uh, it was an honor. Um, it's real easy for imposter syndrome to kick in at that point, you know, because I'm, I'm a humble guy. Like, I don't, you know, I don't do this for the recognition or the money, obviously. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> It was difficult at the same time, you know, because moments like those, I really feel my dad. I really feel connected to my dad and, you know, his his work and his vision. But it was great to be validated publicly uh, for my work and validated in my peer group. Um, it, it's It's been amazing. I'm, I'm really humbled and honored by it. And uh, it's created a lot of work for me. A lot, a lot of people are after me. My phone blows up back like the restaurant days. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about the future then. Where where do you see this five, ten years down the road or even further? You know, kind of five-year plan is to get fully funded uh, and um, fully operational. So we're still very much, uh, you know, in the kind of life cycle of a nonprofit. We're still very much in the startup phase. So, yeah, I mean, the ball's rolling. Uh, The plan is to just grow and serve more kids, get really more focused into STEAM and STEM programming and career opportunities and creating these pipelines and pathways to viable and lucrative careers. After the break... Can familial DNA and genetic genealogy solve a cold case in Colony from 1959? The Colony police are hoping so. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. On December 8, 1959, the body of an 18-year-old woman named Ruth Whitman was found along the side of Sand Creek Road in Colony. She hadn't been dead too long. She'd been seen alive earlier in the day in Albany. Police then determined that she was murdered, struck with a blunt object in the back of the head. They also determined she'd put up a fight. She had scrapings of skin underneath her fingernails. Suspects emerged, including a man who later became a convicted serial killer. But no one was ever charged. DNA analysis and genetic genealogy were non-existent in 1959, so the samples lifted from Whitman's body led nowhere, and then they were lost to time. Colony police in 2022, however, are hoping that today's tech can help them solve the case. Whitman's remains were exhumed earlier this month, and samples have been sent off to the lab. Times Union reporter Paul Nelson has been following the developments in this case. I caught up with him this week to learn more. Can you just give me the background? Like, what happened in 1959? Right. So the uh, police and colony uh, found Ruth Whitman. Uh, she's an 18-year-old uh, woman, and uh, her body was found in a uh, shallow ditch on Sand Creek Road in the town of Colony. And, you know, they determined that she had been um, struck in the head with a, uh, a blunt um, object and also beaten. And then that obviously started an investigation. Now, she actually lived on Lancaster Street in the city of Albany. So where, where this happened is close to the border. So like I said, that started the investigation. And at that time, keep in mind that Colony was a relatively small police force. This was in December of 1959. So they conducted the investigation. It was actually led by the state police and they were able to, uh, you know, take evidence. Um, specifically, they extracted evidence, scrapings from under her um, fingernails because there was a struggle, you know, with her attacker. So they were able to extract that evidence. But obviously, they didn't have the DNA um, technology that now exists today. Uh, and they had limited resources also. They weren't able to make much headway when it comes to the investigation. And then for a while, you know, there wasn't a whole lot done with it. It sort of was on the back burner, if you will. I mean, and uh, then in 2012 is when a relative of um, Ruth Whitman came to the police department uh, and asked them about the case. And at that point, many of the police officers weren't even aware that this has ha had happened. I mean, because I mean, they weren't uh, even born yet, right? Exactly, right, exactly. I, I was just getting to that. I mean, for a lot of these police officers, they weren't even born when this happened. Uh, it was like probably you know, they, decades before some of them were born. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, the body was actually exhumed on August uh, the 1st from uh, a cemetery in uh, Glenmont. Her body was exhumed. It was uh, examined at the gravesite. There were obviously all these um, forensics and DNA experts. They... Uh, you know, took some of the evidence at the gravesite there in Glenmont. And also the body was then transferred, you know, to Ellis Hospital where they did an autopsy 
and now they're awaiting the results. They expect that those results will you know, take uh, a month, at least a month or so before they get back the results. And then after that, it'll probably require additional testing uh, you know, to see if there's a hit, if you will. And uh, possibly, you know, this could lead them to make an arrest um, all these decades later. If whoever's responsible is still alive, right? Correct. You're absolutely right. And in terms of uh, potential suspects, I mean, at the time, uh, Ruth Whitman was living, like I said, on Lancaster Street with her um, fiance at the time, a guy named Nelson Paul. And uh, he, at the time that this happened, was at work. So police were able to check his alibi the alibi checked out but i mean you know the nature of police work he still remains a suspect and there's two other individuals now the intriguing element of this is that ruth whitman at the time lived just down the street from the notorious serial killer robert garrow so he can't be ruled out you know as a potential suspect i mean it's just ironic that you know at the time like i said he just lived close by to her now she was seen because it was a fire that night it happened on um, December the 8th. There was a pretty large um, fire that took place on her street. So she actually, like a lot of people, there's a big fire on your street. She was actually sighted. She was actually at the fire along with other people. And there's two individuals, including the landlord of the apartment where she stayed at, and at least another person who corroborated that they saw her you know, leave that fire scene, head back to her apartment. And that was the last time that anybody, you know, saw her alive. And essentially, you know, that happened when I talked to the investigators. They said that, you know, that happened between 63 and 95 Lancaster Street. You know, she just seemingly disappeared and vanished. So, uh, you know, just so many different elements to the case. Oh, absolutely. Now, this is Colony Police's oldest cold case. Is that accurate? It, It is the oldest cold case, and it remains the only homicide that's unsolved, you know, with the Colony Police Department. And I should say, you know, that when you look at the investigation, there was some evidence that was lost because, like I told you earlier, the state police actually, you know, led this joint investigation. And uh, once they closed their case, you know, they transferred the file to the Colony Police Department, somehow that evidence that they, you know, took, and that included the you know, scrapings under the fingernail and other evidence that got lost. And then fast forward now, and this is essentially the same evidence as what they were able to extract when they exhumed the, the body. That evidence, like I said, going back to you know the 1950s, late 1950s, early 1960s, somehow got lost. So they're going to use the evidence that they collect. They're going to use something like genetic genealogy to kind of figure out right, exactly that, and that's what it is it's dna technology um forensic science and genealogy to try to see you know if there is a match to you know the dna that they have uh you know there's a, a national database i believe it's called codis so they're going to try to match that to you know these potential suspects that they're kind of zooming in on so that, that's how it's going to work what inspired them to suddenly do this? It was the relative, right? Exactly. It was a relative. The case was reopened in 2012. Uh, a relative walked into the uh, Colony Police Department and was inquiring about the case. And, you know, like the uh, deputy police chief, Robert Wynn, told me a lot of, you know, the uh, police officers were just kind of incredulous because they weren't even aware about the case. So that got them to say, OK, we got to look at this with a fresh set of eyes and like I said, then also with that, you know, they started looking at the potential of using, you know, this cutting edge technology that didn't exist 
back then. So uh, the two lead investigators, like you said, they weren't even born. They're younger guys. Um, you know, John Santorio and um, Jeff Lockhart. They've had the case for a few months, but before that, there was another detective, Kevin Terry. You know, he retired, and then the case was handed off to them. You know, she still does have at least two sisters and, you know, lots of nieces and nephews who are alive. And, you know, this case, obviously, when it's something like tragic like this happens to a relative, that's something that uh, stays with you. So, as a matter of fact, when they did the exhumation, uh, I believe at least two of her sisters were present uh, when that happened. And, you know, they of course, are keeping a close eye on this. And, uh, you know, they want they want answers. I mean, just, you know, if, if it was anybody, if you lost a loved one in such a tragic manner, you'd want to get some answers. So, uh, you know, one of the sisters, I believe, lives in the upstate area, and another one, I believe, lives in uh, the state of Oregon. By all accounts, Ruth Whitman, you know, she was quiet, kept to herself. You know, she worked as a babysitter. At the time, she was a few weeks pregnant. Then you have the involvement of this notorious serial killer, you know, the fact that police, you know, somehow lost that evidence from the original investigation. It just had so many interesting elements. And then you throw into that the fact that, you know, this um, genealogy and the DNA testing and the forensics aspects of it. It's just, you know, just such a, an intriguing case. So I was more than happy when he said, hey, would you like to do this? I jumped at the opportunity to do it. That's great. And everybody loves a good cold case. I mean, you know. <laughs> You're right about that. You're right about that. And the, and the police officers, I mean, they're they're invested in this. I mean, they want answers just like the family does. And they've said, hey, we're not going to give up. I mean, we're going to solve this, whether it's now or, or later. So they're hopeful that, you know, once they do get back the analysis, you know, from the scrapings from under the finger, fingernails. And also, they I, I forgot to mention that they took impressions, you know, from the skull because she was struck, like I said earlier, you know, with a, a blunt object. So they took impressions and hopefully that can also yield some evidence that might, you know, lead them uh, to, to her killer. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We're going to take a break next week, but we'll be back in two weeks with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks to Casey Seiler and Paul Nelson for their contribution to this episode. <laughs>